Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, our podcast about education research, policy, and practice at the American Enterprise Institute. So last year, student loan debt in the United States hit a measly $1.5 trillion. And so lawmakers at the federal and state level and a host of Democratic presidential candidates have been proposing policy solutions that can lower or cancel student debt. And at the same time, Congress has been looking for ways to hold colleges more accountable for student outcomes. Right now, many have very little skin in the game for ensuring that their students end up going to earn jobs that are going to allow them to pay back substantial debt. On this episode, we want to talk about one idea that might partially accomplish both objectives, income share agreements, in which students avoid paying some or all tuition up front and end up paying the school a fixed percentage of their future income for a limited period of time. Now, this is a relatively new idea, and only a few institutions are experimenting with it. Most notable is Purdue's Back a Boiler program, and there's some coding boot camps that are now using it as a financing tool for their students. But it's attracting attention from colleges, policymakers, and investors. So to talk about this idea and whether they're a helpful solution to some aspects of college affordability, I brought on two guests, Tonio Desorento, CEO and co-founder of Vimo Education, and Beth Akers a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Beth Antonio, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. To start off with, Beth, can you tell us what is an income share agreement? Sure. So an income share agreement is essentially a contract between a student and their institution, their college or their university. And what it is, is an agreement that says, I, the college, will give you, Nat, some money up front to pay for your expense of going to college. And in exchange, you're not going to pay me back fixed monthly payments like you would on an auto loan or a mortgage. You're going to give me a share of your future income for a set period of time. So that's a fixed fraction of your annual income for a set number of years. So no principal, no interest, just a percentage of your income. Exactly right. And so what this does, it ensures that the amount that you're paying back to me is in proportion to how much you actually benefit from that education or how much you're earning. The nice thing about that is that it protects you, the borrower, from ever having to face an unaffordable payment. Okay, so that's interesting and makes sense. Help me out a little bit more, though. What problem are income share agreements designed to solve? So there are a couple things. One, students who borrow to invest in higher education, especially when they use PLUS loans or private student loans, they're putting themselves in a risky position in that they're investing in a degree that may or may not pay back, pay off to them in terms of more consistent employment and higher earnings, but they're going to have to pay back those loans regardless. And so an income share agreement is sort of like a borrowing mechanism that also works like an insurance policy layered on top of that. The other problem that I see ISA is solving, especially as these grow and maybe in future iterations and models of income share agreement, is that it puts the burden on the institution to deliver for their students. When an ISA contract is, is created, what it does is it tells the institution, I'm only getting paid if I produce an outcome for my students. So I need to make sure my students graduate get through with skills that will land them in a job that's going to get them the pay that they're looking for. And that's when I get paid back. So it puts more responsibility on institutions. So, Tonio, you work with these institutions at BMO Education to set up income share agreement arrangements. Where is this taking place? I mean, who's starting these ISAs? We're seeing a mix of 
educational institutions approaching us to do this from flagship publics like Purdue University and University of Utah to private nonprofit colleges like Clarkson University or Messiah College, Norwich University, to workforce development programs like San Diego Workforce Partnerships, partnership with UC San Diego, to non-Title IV schools, to programs like General Assembly or Flatiron School that teach software development on an accelerated basis. The value of this for those institutions, the reason they're doing this is to communicate value. To, they want to communicate value to students. They want to show that they're aligned with the risks that students take when they come to that institution. And they want to learn what happens to their graduates. They want to obtain that granular outcomes data. It's not just a, a financial benefit. They get to see what happened. They get to use that data to improve. So where we don't see income share agreements happening is in a direct-to-consumer sense or in a commercially driven sense. Okay. So what are the variables involved when you're designing an income share agreement? I mean, just off the top of my head, it seems like you got to have a percentage of your income you have to agree to. Also, that might depend on how much you borrow. I imagine if you borrow $10,000, you pay a certain percentage. And if you borrow $80,000, you probably have to pay a higher percentage. What else do we have to consider when we're designing these programs for the terms that students are signing on for? Yeah, so you, you kind of nailed it and that there's there's two basic ones, which is how long do I have to pay you for? So if you're buying a share of my future income, for how long are you buying that share? That matters. Right. And what percentage of my income are you, in a sense, buying from me through giving me that money up front to pay for college? So then the other parameters are more of protections for the, the consumer or the borrower. And that's how much the student has to ultimately pay back in the long run. If they go out and make millions in their first few years after college, do they have to pay back that same percentage and, right. and make a big windfall for the university? Or is there a cap? We're seeing caps in a lot of instances. And then the other one is, is there an amount of money below which on a monthly basis, if you're not making that level of salary, that you don't have to pay anything? And that's an important one to make sure that these are not undue burden. So that seems like there's protections on the low end and the high end, but they're sort of different, right? The low end is, are you making enough money to pay any of your income? And that I would imagine is consistent. So if you get fired and you're laid off for three months, then you don't have to pay for three months. But the cap isn't on the monthly, it's on the total, right? So if there's a cap of 1.8x your original borrowing, you'll never pay more than 1.8x. Do I have this right? You have that right. And, uh, and of course, we wouldn't use the word borrowing. Of course. Of course. <laughs> in of art in, in extensions of credit. But in designing one of these, you know, the persona who's designing an income share agreement is a university administrator. And so there are the terms that students see as individuals. But then there's just the, what does this feel like to do this at your university? So important questions and they have are, you know, what are the, what's the degree of subsidy they want to have as, a, as an institution? Most institutions are subsidizing these pretty significantly. They have to think about, like, what do outcomes look like for our institution? You know, how like or dislike are students across different parts of the school? They have to think about persistence. There are all these th questions we have to ask, I suppose, about the in-school experience of people. Then questions about how geographically concentrated are people when they leave. For example, if we're going to have an income share agreement on nominal earnings. It varies greatly from the coasts to the center of the country, yeah, it does. for example. And then we have to think about what are they already charging? What's a school charging today? What's the existing student debt burden of people who are there? Because 
if you're meeting the need of a traditional student and they're borrowing a federal student loan, this is gap financing, we have to think about a percent of income can't be too high or you'll overburden a person, affect their career decisions in a way that income share agreements are designed to not do. On the other hand, you may be a program that is not Title IV eligible or a program where the institution itself and the program are completely eligible for federal student aid, but the majority of students you're trying to help have already exhausted their aid or are for some reason ineligible. And that's like the Colorado Mountain College ISA program we run is for DACA students. We have programs for adult learners who are completing, who again, have exhausted their aid in their teens and 20s, and now they're coming back to school very serious. And so understanding that very well, those are huge inputs to the design of one of these that expresses individual terms, like the ones Beth described. Typically, I mean, if you can give me some parameters, if you get $20,000 from an income share agreement, what kind of percentage of your income are you paying? Or does it totally vary? This is going to be very unsatisfying. All right. Because because these are currently, at least at VMO Education, these are financial aid instruments that are one of a number of tools that our institutions have for financial aid. You know, they, they set their own admissions policies, their own tuition and discounting and pricing policies, and they set their own financial aid policies. And, and they are, each school is working very hard to become the best version of itself. You know, they're not trying to Messiah College does not want to become Clarkson, which was not does not want to become Norwich. Right. But they're trying to be the best version of themselves and, and fix the problem at their school with the budget they have. So we're looking at a revenue-dependent private nonprofit or revenue-dependent public. Sure. With an infinite time horizon. And they are subs their their desire is to subsidize these. And so that's the relative subsidy does vary a lot by institution. I know it's very unsatisfying. I think what I would say though is there's a an expected earnings. You really are just looking at the gross income times a percentage. Right. That should add up to the amount of tuition initially waived unless there's a subsidy. And in the case of a program like Purdue Universities, which is a private student loan substitute, it has to maintain the size of that fund. So not just return the amount of dollars that were waived in tuition, it has to return the time value of money or has to return something to account for that money being out for years so that the fund can be sustainable. So it focuses on future earnings rather than looking backward. I mean, how are colleges looking at the candidates for these ISAs? Is it one size fits all, or do they tailor the ISA agreements for different kind of kids getting different kind of majors? So at Vimo Education, my company, we work with colleges as clients who want to work with income share agreements. And I think First of all, looking at income share agreements, you know, there there is what's an income share agreement and there's what what is it not? And it's, you know, it's not a substitute for the federally subsidized loans and grants that students already take. It's not the silver bullet to, you know, every challenge in post-secondary education finance. So this isn't going to replace the federal student loan portfolio. No. Okay. I I think that the hype is a little bit ahead of what schools are really doing. You know, most our college clients are using income share agreements to help students today as as a part of their financial aid, it, it's a way to introduce a form of pay-as-you-succeed tuition so that people can conclude that your school's valuable. We just came from a discussion, Beth and I, where everybody's head nodded when a person said, you know, if you don't have a high sticker price, people don't think you're valuable. You have no way to signal value. And if you cut your sticker price, they think you're not valuable. And saying you only have to pay some of this if it works, and works equals what you care about as a student or parent, early career path earnings. That signals value very clearly, particularly to adult learners, 
non-traditional students, veterans, first-generation students who are pursuing an education to reach a new level of economic stability. There's downside protection that's very valuable, and schools like to show that. They say, hey, you know, it's not not every college is a sure thing to people, or not every non-college education experience is a sure thing. And offering some kind of downside protection is very valuable to students. We see colleges doing this to cause institutional alignment to be really visible, which means they don't have a reason to discriminate between student types. The short point to a long answer is our colleges are not are not treating different student groups differently as to income share agreements. They're using these as a big as a bigger strategic program to signal value, ensure alignment, and learn. Because our college clients haven't had granular outcomes data. You know they're going to create that with this. They're going to learn about their eight eligible students and the students who have income share agreements and how they can improve as colleges. They'll certainly know because they'll be getting payments based on that data, right? That's correct. Okay, so. Let's back up a minute. How long has this idea been around? And not just the idea is for sort of a theoretical thing, though I want to know that, but when did universities or other educational institutions really start to use these? Well, I'll say we've been talking about the idea for a very long time. It was Milton Friedman who's credited with first writing about this idea in the 1950s. So in theory, the idea has been around uh, for ages. In practice, Tonio can talk about the development of the marketplace. But we've really seen the most moving in the last five years, and it's really growing in a small segment of the higher education finance marketplace, but it seems to be growing pretty quickly. That's right. The first college to launch an income share agreement program itself and succeed with it was Purdue University in 2016. And now they've renewed and they've upsized that program to help more students and broaden eligibility across their campus. But they've been joined by other schools like University of Utah on the flagship public side, and sure. as well as private nonprofits of all sizes, and then skills-based training providers like General Assembly. And General Assembly is one of these coding camps where you go for a short period of time, get intense coding training. Sort of makes sense to do an income share agreement there because the students are going to leave and they're going into a high-need field that gets paid pretty well. So that sort of makes sense to me. But these are big universities that, at least some, that are stepping into the the ring here. How many students are involved in income share agreements at, say, Purdue? I think Purdue's been public about that, and I think it's about 800. Yeah, but I also want to comment on something you just said, which is a common belief, and that's that income share agreements really work for students who are heading into high pay occupations. And that's actually a criticism that a lot of people have of ISA, is they say, what is this going to do to really address some of the systemic challenges we have in higher education if it's a tool that really only works for people who are already pretty well served by our financing system. Because if you're heading into a high pay occupation, you might as well take out debt because you're going to be able to pay it back. The thing that's really valuable about income share agreements, and I think we'll start to see this play out more over time, is that it provides an insurance policy for people who have a less certain pathway forward. And so Tonio can talk about this, but they've been able to finance income share agreements for all different types of students. It's not just restricted to people who are on a pathway towards a very predictable, high-paying career. And it's, in fact, those people who benefit the least from having an income share agreement because they already have relative certainty about what their financial future is going to look like. To me, the problem that's being solved with ISAs is that we're able to mitigate the risk, take away the potential downside for people who are investing a lot in education and are concerned that it might not pay off for them in the future. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, if I'm pretty confident that I'm going to leave school and make a bunch of money, I 
probably don't want an income share agreement, right? I mean, I'll probably end up paying in the short run more than I might pay over a loan. Am I seeing this correctly? Well, at some institutions, what you've just described would have happened, except the way that they've designed the programs is that students who are in high-paying pathways or in a pathway towards a high-paying occupation have terms that are more generous than students who are on a pathway towards a less well-paying occupation. And that's just so that, on average, they're paying back approximately what they took out. Or in some cases, they even design these income share agreement programs that the students are paying back less than what they took. In those cases, it's really just a substitute for a scholarship program, but it's a scholarship program that continues to fund itself into the future because the students are paying back into it. And part of the key to this is that there's other safeguards along these lines, but with an income share agreement, usually there's a minimum threshold underneath which you don't pay anything back. Is that right? Every program we've seen anywhere, but everyone we run at BMO Education has a minimum income threshold set by the school as well as a cap on payment. And where are those minimum income thresholds hovering? It really depends on the goal of the school. So some schools, their goal is to avoid hardship for a person who's not earning any money. In other cases, it's more to signal that they're confident you'll get a high paying job. Because you know, going back to something you said earlier, Nat, or a question you had was, if I think I'm going to earn a lot, why would I want one of these? I mean, Beth pointed out how BMO's clients have designed ISA programs that don't have either adverse or positive selection, where our school clients are finding participation to be representative of the aid-eligible student body. According to course of study, you know, STEM, non-STEM, male, female, in-state, out-of-state. But there's another high value to income share agreements, and this goes to questions or concerns of a person who is seeking a particular employment outcome. Today, you know, we think of income share agreements as, you know, answering the question, how will I pay for this? Do I want a loan or do I want something different? But I think where this is moving is as a signal of value for the institution. And the question it'll answer is, which school should I pick? The one that says, pay me up front completely, and we'll see what happens. Or the one who says, pay some or all of this only if it works. Then if you're the person who cares a lot about your employment outcome, income share agreement's guiding you to the right place. It's guiding you to the place where even if you want to pay up front or get a loan, if income share agreement's not right for you, you know that school is willing to invest in what they put out. We think that that's going to make the best schools stand out. It'll help them justify investment in student outcomes that are hard to justify today. And it will help, you know, I'm going to use the vernacular, but like, it'll be harder to hide the ball from learners who really need upward economic mobility and in seeking that, who today have a very difficult time distinguishing between institutions. So it's interesting that income share agreements are gaining popularity today. I think it's part of a broader interest we have in putting more of the onus on institutions to deliver. So several years ago, we started having a conversation in the policy community around higher education that we called skin in the game. And it was this idea that we're giving a lot of federal dollars to institutions and sort of just crossing our fingers and hoping that they deliver for students. So the idea of a quote-unquote skin-in-the-game revision to the Higher Education Act was that we would put some sort of penalty onto institutions if, in fact, they were producing consistently poor results for their students. You know, there's a lot of debate about what exactly that would look like. But what's exciting to me about an income share agreement is that this is institutions getting out ahead of a potential regulatory regime on them, which would demand that they produce results or have to pay back to the federal government. 
And this is a system where they say, hey, look, we want to prove to you that we're delivering quality. And if we don't, you're not going to pay for it. So that's what's really exciting to me. It's, It's part of a broader conversation about institutional responsibility. But in the case of ISAs, it's the individual private entities that are taking the lead in in reclaiming the responsibility for student outcomes. So I want to talk about regulation in a minute here. But first of all, where does the money come from, right? You got to spend up front to set one of these up, essentially. Is the college paying for this and waiting to get reimbursed later? Are there investors? Is this federal money? How does this work? We see a mix of this at Vimo Education. And this is a Another area where the hype is a little bit ahead of what the market is, Purdue University raised a fund to fund its income share agreements backstopped by its endowments. The school took real financial risk and and won participation from nonprofit investors like its state secondary market for education finance. We've seen San Diego Workforce Partnership do an income share agreement program backed by Schmidt Futures, Google.org, and Strata Education. So again, more impact money, University of Utah was supported by Lumina Foundation. Where we've seen market-driven finance or commercial finance succeed is with schools like General Assembly and Flatiron School that are skills-based, shorter, and very focused on a particular employment outcome. It's very easy for them to get aligned with a commercial investor, but the majority of VMO Education's clients by school are colleges who are balance sheeting, meaning they're holding the risk for the income share agreements they're they're doing. And they're not, for that reason, not, one big reason why this isn't displacing federal student loans and grants, this is schools using income share agreements to discover their outcomes, to see if they can influence retention and completion, to see if they can recruit a student body that is more sensitive about earnings, as opposed to all students who, who are from affluent backgrounds and don't care. Is that with parental insurance? You know. Yeah, yeah. So they're trying to improve access and, and mobility and they're using income share agreements for that. And as Beth brought up a, a concept earlier of a pay it forward model with these income share agreement funds at the schools where the schools, the money that comes in, this is a private nonprofit or a public, they're using it to fund more financial aid, in many cases, more income share agreements. So that's what that's where the market is today. And I think where it'll go on the college access net is that colleges will become more artful at funding these, the way they fund other important things they undertake. And on the commercial side, I think it'll be a, a mechanism to discipline schools on their how much they charge versus their outcomes. It'll be a mechanism for schools that are all about outcomes, again, like coding boot camps, to compete based on outcomes. And it'll be a governor on overbuilding because uh, an issue with higher education generally, and especially for-profit higher education, is overbuilding of capacity. So a degree makes a ton of sense when there's an employment need, and then people build beyond that right. because they they can get paid for it. And no one can get paid for one of these if there's not good if there aren't good outcomes for students. So I think that's where that goes, I think commercial and uh, school-based. Well, it seems like it certainly aligns it because they only get paid when their students earn money. And so they're actually not exactly selling an education, but they're selling future earning potential. Yes, but... Again, for a college, it's not 100% of tuition. It's a way for them to learn about what's happening to their graduates. It's a way for people who earn maybe more than is expected to progressively pay that forward to future classmates so that the financial aid budgets can be more generous, as opposed to merely saying, we're both going to bet on high earnings for a set of graduates, the school and the students. It's a way for a school to get alignment on that, but 
we don't see schools going all in, colleges going all in on earnings as the only value of the thing they're delivering. And Nan, I think you're alluding to really a popular criticism of income share agreements, which is that it puts a lot of emphasis on the idea of earnings as being the sole outcome that people are concerned about with higher education. And you know, obviously, we want to think that higher education does a lot more than just put someone on a pathway to earn money. But consumers want a pathway towards a profitable career that they can use to support themselves. 90% of people who go into higher education report that the number one reason they go to college is to increase their earnings or advance themselves in a career. And so, you know, I don't think it's a fair criticism to say that, you know, we shouldn't be putting more emphasis on earnings as an outcome. So that that part doesn't bother me about ISAs, but it certainly does other people. Tonio, tell me a little bit about VMO education. And also, what are the factors that you help institutions adjust to get their income share agreements to align with their needs and their students? Vimo Education, educational technology company that helps colleges design and implement income share agreement programs. About just over 30 college clients now, almost 20 non-college clients. A history of, of doing income share agreements with institutions like Purdue and University of Utah that are focused on institutionally significant objectives. So I think what we do is we, we ask first, what are you trying to accomplish at a college? Every college president has something they're trying to accomplish, every college CFO. Purdue wanted to reduce reliance on their aid eligible students on private student loans. And we helped them design an income share agreement program that would meet the needs of those private student loan borrowers on their campus differently than private student loans so that they could make progress toward that. And I think they feel they have. University of Utah had a retention and stopout challenge for a certain students. And we, we designed an income share agreement program there that complemented that strategic objective. And so the thing that we do that's most valuable, I think, is helping colleges design income share agreement programs that'll complement a strategy they already have, and then bundle that with other strategies to really maneuver on a goal. So that could mean packaging financial aid a little differently for junior, seniors, fifth-year seniors to be more successful. It could mean positioning their value proposition a little differently for prospective applicants so that they're more successful as a school in attracting the students they want and spending less money doing it. Where we go as a company here, we're experts in income share agreements. But to succeed with that for an institution like a college, we really have to be experts at the needs of colleges across recruitment, enrollment, retention, and completion. And so we're just trying to get better and better at that and use what we learn from income share agreement programs at schools to help their peers start better and start smarter. So I know that this policy is relatively new. So I imagine the research base is relatively thin. Do we know anything yet from research on income share agreements? We are right on the verge of learning quite a bit. So because the income share agreement programs have been in place only for a few years at this point, students are just getting to the point of graduating and starting to pay back their obligation to the universities in the case of Purdue, for example. So I'm really excited to see what will come of the researchers on campuses working with income share agreements to see what they're finding. So we know there, I know there is an economist working at Purdue working with the data from their financial aid office to understand how people interact with an income share agreement. And hopefully we'll be doing some survey work to understand how they feel about their income share agreement relative to a student loan. The Lumina Foundation just gave generous support to the University of Utah to conduct research on their income share agreement program. And I'm excited that that research is going to be baked into their income share agreement program from the start. So they'll really be able to learn a lot about 
how the ISA works for students. And again, I think what's really important is how students feel about income share agreements, because student loans, in theory, work really well. People borrow a lot, then they go to college, they pay a lot, and then on the back end, they make enough to more than to offset how much they borrowed, but they are still mad about having these debts. And there's something to that, right? Debt seems to be scary. We've made it into a villain for like young people in their lives. I'm curious to see if income share agreements will make people feel differently about their financial obligations around higher education. So the research obviously has to wait a little bit longer until we can actually learn from it. But you also mentioned regulation. How far ahead of the regulation are the current income share agreements and what sort of regulatory needs might there be out there? So the income share agreements that are in operation today are currently without federal oversight. So there are not guardrails from federal policy on what the terms need to be for income share agreements. The way that the market has evolved, as Tonio described, is that we don't have commercial banks going out and and offering income share agreements to their clients. I can't go to Bank of America or to Citibank and get an income share agreement to pay for my child to go to college. What happens is that as a student, I can go to my financial aid office if my institution has an income share agreement program, and they will offer me a small set of options that they have worked with an ISA provider to create. So in a sense, the institutions are operating as the regulator and making sure that the students who are utilizing ISAs today don't have terms that seem unfair, at least from their perspective. Over time, I think we really do want to see that the government puts some protections or guardrails around what the terms for income share agreements are. Things to think about are what is the the maximum that a student can repay over the course of the term of their income share agreement? If they graduate and become Mark Zuckerberg, are they going to have to pay back an exorbitant sum or do we want to put a cap on that? What is the length of time that's appropriate for an ISA? And what's a percentage of monthly income that becomes onerous for borrowers and we just don't want to go above that? So We'll have to wait for regulation to evolve. And I think the positives of putting in place regulation in this space are, one, that it protects consumers, of course, but two, I think it also inspires confidence among investors so that it's easier to actually have growth in an ISA marketplace. So I've heard the Federal Department of Education is sort of interested in income share agreements. Should they get into the game? Should they throw in some money or is that a problematic I think the federal role right now is to put some guardrails up for the income share agreement marketplace through regulation, but not to get directly involved with federal resources. There's a lot that the federal lending program could learn from income share agreements about how to structure a program that's safe for borrowers and efficient for taxpayers. If the Federal Department of Education wants to take strides in in getting involved in the notion of income share agreements, I'd really like to see them pushing reforms to the Higher Education Act that makes student lending work more efficiently, maybe through automatic payment withholding from income or defaulting borrowers into income-based repayment so that the system works more like an income share agreement. But let's let the market for income share agreements grow on its own, maybe aided by the fact that we're putting in place regulation to give investors uh, confidence that they can put money behind income share agreements. And then let's wait for the research to come out to see how students respond and interact to income share agreements before we go making what is a a messy system already even more messy. So I appreciate your caution, but Tonio, do you have the same cautious approach or do you think, wow, we could really use some seed money here? Well, at Vimo Education, we're grateful to be working with colleges. We're grateful for the support of policymakers and for the interest of the department, but we wouldn't try to take a position on any investment there. 
totally fair. So this isn't really pitched as a substitute for federal subsidized student loans. It seems like it's more often pitched for private student loans or Parent Plus loans. Is that right? Yeah. So the way it works is generally students who are going to Title IV eligible schools, they're able to get federal financial aid that covers the first bulk of their spending on higher ed. That's Pell Grants, and then it's subsidized student loans, the Stafford student loans. Stafford student loans are a great deal for borrowers. They come with subsidized interest rates, and they also have safety nets baked in. So a borrower can use income-based repayment and ultimately have their loans forgiven if they have financial hardship for an extended period of time. So income share agreements are not a substitute for that. And the way that we're seeing ISAs being used at traditional colleges and universities is that students are exhausting those resources first. And then using or considering using ISAs as an alternative to their parents borrowing, them borrowing through the private lending market, because those are very risky alternatives. And an income share agreement is a more generous option for them, or at least a safer option for them. Okay, so if that's the case, then a lot of the folks that are going to get an income share agreement are going to stack them on top of other student loan debt, right? So how does this sort of stack with income-based borrowing protections for those. I'm just wondering if it takes, I don't know, 5% of your gross income off the top. Does that necessarily stack well if you have several hundred dollars a month in student loans coming? People are concerned, of course, that ISAs are going to be excessively burdensome to these borrowers. And I think it's really important to remember the counterfactual, which is that In the absence of an income share agreement, which is protecting a borrower from ever having to make a payment that's unaffordable based on their current income, that is superior in every way to someone having to pay a flat fixed payment that does not fluctuate with their income. And especially in the case of student loans, these are potentially unaffordable monthly payments that cannot even be discharged in bankruptcy. So, yeah, we can be concerned about the burden that this places on people above and beyond what they already have because of their Stafford or federal financial loans. But again, it's a burden, at least in my mind, that's less than the burden imposed by the tools that they would have used in the absence of an income share agreement. So to recap, these are investments that institutions are making in students. It's not a replacement for the federal student loan program, but it is a measured replacement for specific marginal borrowing that can really help students and also ensure a a real safety net in terms of if they're in dire financial hardship, they're never going to have a problem with an income share agreement. It sounds like safe, marginal, very interesting. What is the most exciting thing that you find about income share agreements and the promise that they might make for higher education. To me, what's exciting about income share agreements is that it's putting the burden back on the institutions to deliver to their students. So I think we've been selling the idea for a long time that a college education is a golden ticket to prosperity in this country. The result of that is that we've got students willing to pay any price to go and a lot of times borrowing more than is really reasonable for them to get in and through college. So what an income share agreement is doing is it's the institutions taking back the responsibility of saying the price that I charge is commensurate with the value that I'm providing to you. And if it's not, you're not going to pay. 
I think that's a really exciting idea in the very narrow space of income share agreements. But as someone who follows higher education policy and finance more broadly, I think that's an exciting trend and that people are thinking about the responsibility of the institutions in that way. And these are voluntary acts by these institutions. When they're deciding to take on an income share agreement, they are voluntarily putting skin in the game. That's That's right. right. This is an opt-in system where we have colleges and universities opting into sharing financial risk with their students. The most exciting thing to me that I'm seeing with income share agreements in the future where this is going is helping the best schools that do deliver a lot of value stand out for that and improve. Because today, students are particularly like a, you know, a veteran, I'm a former Marine, like a veteran coming, looking for a transition to civilian life, might be looking at education, and they're picking between the school with the best television ad and the one with the most aggressive boiler room, instead of the one out of the thousands of institutions who's really investing in the employment outcomes. The ones who are doing the right thing right now are at a disadvantage. They can use income share agreements, pay for success tuition, to play offense, attract students by showing them that this is the right place for them. And, and over time, acquire the outcomes data to prove it and use that outcomes data. If they're, if they're great, they're going to tout that. And the best schools are going to acquire more students and be rewarded for that the right way. If they're not great, they, they'll have the first tools they've ever had, the first information they've had to fix it, to work on it. And so what we see here are, are schools who care a lot about value and outcomes already are self-identifying by doing income share agreements. I think it's only going to compound. We've seen it happen already in the code school sector where you can't start one of these anymore without income share agreements. All of them have income share agreements already. They've added them all since 2016. And it's because students keep calling and asking for it. It's a place where the employment outcome is 100% of the value. For Again, for millions of college students, the employment outcome is, is really the value. And we're hiding that from them right now. The best colleges are going to have a way to signal that and stand out. And it's going to be very exciting, I think. You know, a lot of the abuses we read about in post-secondary ed, failure factories, people with student debt, crisis, you know, that, that's a derivative of a value crisis. People don't feel like they got what they paid for. I think we see the seeds of that here for the schools themselves, the best schools, to start to take action on that. I have to agree with Tony on that one and reiterate the point that, you know, we'd love to see that traditional colleges and universities are being really innovative in how they deliver education to their students. But it's actually what's happening outside of our traditional higher ed space where we're seeing the really innovative models, things like boot camps, for example. These are places where the students can't access federal student aid dollars and they can't take out loans from the Federal Department of Education to pay for their degrees. So as Tony, I was just talking about, they're using ISAs completely to finance the entire cost of their education. So this idea that the institutions are going to have to take ownership over the outcomes of their students are really salient in that setting, more so than in the instance of Purdue or University of Utah, where students are using the ISA to cover the gap that remains after they've financed it largely with other resources. So I think the idea of bringing price in line with value and the institutions really delivering on what they promised, we're going to see those results first in this space that's operating outside of the traditional academic higher education space. And I think that's really exciting. Tonio, I'm interested in the transaction costs here, right? I mean, how hard is it to track this data? I don't know what you know, my middle school students back when I was a teacher make now, and I don't really know how a university is supposed to keep track of their future students' earnings. So how does that part of the system work? Yeah, the administrative piece of this is not insignificant. Nat. When we started Vimo Education, my co-founders and I, I have three co-founders, we weren't looking forward to doing that ourselves. We said, well, surely we can 
contract one of the many student loan servicers who already do income-based payment tracking for the federal government. And we found that it, it wouldn't work. The posture you're in as a federal student loan servicer is you sit back and you wait for somebody to send the thing in. And if they follow all the rules just right, you might approve their application for something like pay-as-you-earn or income-based payment. We have to be in a very active posture because one of the larger value propositions for a school who's doing this is this outcomes data. They want to know. It's very valuable. So we've had to invest a lot in it. I would say today, Nat, it's very high touch and it's expensive, but our school partners have found it to be worthwhile. And as income share agreements grow, and I'm assuming they will spread, as they do, do those costs come down? They could. I think we are, as a group of people working on income share agreements from academics to practitioners to our schools, we're all trying to innovate. And I think we have either to discover new ways to do that or innovate more to bring those costs down even more than simply scaling. The, the best way to collect that information hasn't been invented yet, probably. So it's something you're still working on. And given that this industry's what, four or five years old? Yeah, that's right. We, we got our first income share agreements in May 2016 at Vimo, And you know those were in school. So it, people can forgive you for taking a few years to get well, and it, work out all the kinks. It's not that it's not happening. It's that we think it's worth as a category, I don't think that I speak just for my own company. I think the category thinks it's worth investing in doing things that do not scale today to make sure that we scale the right things and doing things manually sometimes today that could be automated to make sure we automate the right things because it's naive to think we see exactly how this is going to go. Our college partners teach us something. Every time we talk to a college, there's some idea that comes out that we think, oh gosh, you know, wish we had thought of that for these other five colleges we already launched. That's a great idea. Over time, we're going to evolve best practices, both on the program design, but also on the execution, the implementation of these things. I'm just being super transparent that in humility, we are just in the middle of learning that and building it right now. So there's a lot at stake for Tonio and the folks at Vimo right now, because everyone is really skeptical of the ISA business. So no one ever really liked what was happening with the private student loan market. It's not a huge marketplace, but there's a sense that students don't really make out too well when they're taking out private student loans. I think there's a concern that students are going to feel exploited by an income share agreement. My belief in observing what's been happening with the programs that we're seeing on the ground is that everyone is being really careful to make sure that the students are treated really fairly in the existing contracts so that there's opportunity for this marketplace to grow. Because if it's perceived that Vimo is a bad actor and taking advantage of the people who are using ISAs, they're going to write themselves out of business. And, you know, I feel like the terms that we're seeing are reflecting that. One thing that I want to ask about student loan servicers, they're getting sort of a bad rap lately. Maybe some of the complaints that we hear about for student loan servicers might be because stuff's complicated. People don't necessarily understand what they're signing up for when they're 19, 22, and then five years later, it may really seem like they're getting the, an unfair deal, maybe just because they didn't understand it. How hard is it to educate the students up front about what this means so that down the road, they get exactly what they expect? Educating students in income share agreements, we have experience with that at Vimo. It's not harder than educating them about loans. The one thing that is a misconception is that income share agreements are more complicated or more difficult to understand. And I think empirically, people don't understand debt and compound interest and things like that very well. Right. If you just do something much more intuitive, you just pay a percent of your income and it ends after a period of time, 
it's more complicated for a person who's been working in lending their entire lives to understand, but it is actually simpler for a consumer, particularly when in partnership with a school. We haven't found these to be too complicated or, or too difficult for consumers or financial aid administrators to understand. I think a challenge for student loan servicers is that they are in a cost plus business with cost plus cultures. I think I know now, what these, that means, but it might be helpful for you to describe yeah, they, that. As a government contractor, they, they have a cost that they have to manage very tightly and they're allowed to mark a small profit into that. And they are rewarded most for finding small efficiencies in that their ability to get they get more contracts that way, but they're not treated as a class of businesses as if there's any difference between them. They're treated all the same and, and their customers aren't no one customer is valuable to them. They don't have a way to do that. And I think partnering with colleges where colleges very much value their students and getting them to let us at Vimo model an income share agreement program for those students, have those students' information, talk with them about an income share agreement, collect payments from them, and know their employment outcomes. That's a higher value proposition for the school. And so, again, it lets us invest in treating them better. I think you, you can't really win in the position that most student loan services are in today. Again, their customers, they're not allowed to invest in their customers. And of course, they're taking the brunt there. They don't have the institutions as partners. And so, it's a person where the institution got paid up front, and now there's a problem downstream, and right. the institution's not a party to that. Fortunately for Vimo, income share agreements are evolving very differently. And so when we're a partner with a college, doing something really viable for them, they're happy when we invest a lot in being high touch and easy to understand and, and over-communicating and in a way that I think student lending, I don't know how they recover from that. I think it's, it's a really bad position that entire market's in. It is tough. It's hard to understand. And one of the great things that I see in this is how actually you just have a few variables. You can pretty much understand it. And if you end up with a higher payment, it's because you're making more money. So, Well, I'm kind of anxious to see how this plays out, to be honest with you. Some of my research in recent years looked at national survey data with students where they asked them how much student debt they had just a couple months after they'd signed their first promissory note for their federal student loan. And an alarming number of people had no sense of how much they'd borrowed, even at that very early point in their borrowing career. And so I think it's not a small obstacle to get people to really internalize their financial information at this stage. ISAs have a bit of an advantage in that it's something of a novel program. And the places that we're seeing it at traditional colleges, it's branded in a really strong way. And there's a very big push to get people to understand. My advantage as somebody who's sitting on the sidelines and watching the ISA market develop is that I get to see the materials that they use to educate the, the students about the income share agreement. And it teaches me about what's happening on the campus. And there are a, a big effort both at Purdue and the University of Utah but to put out a lot of materials that are user-friendly and can help someone like me or a potential user of an ISA to understand those terms. So I think time will tell how people feel about these things, how well they internalize the, the cost that they're actually signing up for, and we'll see how that plays out. It's a fascinating product. Thanks for coming by to educate us about income share agreements. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Nat. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Tonio DeSorrento and Beth Akers. This episode wouldn't have happened without our excellent team of producers. That includes Cody Christensen, Lexi West, Sophia Gallo, Macy Heath, and Gage Hurley of Liquid Media. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. And if you enjoyed this episode, take a minute, 
and give us a review on iTunes or Google. It helps us reach new audiences. Comments, questions, topic suggestions for future episodes? Drop us a line at ed.podcast at AEI.org. And until next time, I'm Nat Malkus. Malkus.